Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. So today we are back with the second part of our April Mental Health Book Club on Jamel Hill's book, Uphill. We are going to be discussing chapters 6 through 10. So if you're following along in the book, uh, be sure to go back to part 1 if you haven't uh, listened to that one yet. But uh, as always, I'm going to jump in with some of y'all's reactions from this section of the book. I'll go. Um, I missed last week's podcast, um, but <clears throat> just getting like caught up on like all the reading and everything, I really like this book and I don't I didn't know much about Jamel Hill other than like her working at like ESPN um prior to like reading this book and I was very surprised at like her life and like she you know dealt with so much so it's really good to see her like you know coming out of that like graduating college getting like jobs like out of state and like finding like her way I think for me it's um really weird hearing her talk about what it's like to work in a newsroom because a lot of the times she was talking about maybe when she was just getting started, not much has changed. There's still no diversity. Still pretty much one voice. It's usually old white men that dictate what we cover and what we don't cover. And it's very tone deaf. So you got to kind of pick and choose your battles if you are not the majority, unfortunately. Um, and once the like outlet gets a reputation within the community of not being supportive it makes the people that we're trying to sell stories about not want to talk to us and i think that's very fair if you are not respecting those kind of important key demographics as i was reading this i'm not really i'm not a journalist but i like a backstory of how someone got to be where they are so sorry the allergies when in the beginning of the section that we were reading in chapter six, she shared the story about the the school. Uh, I want to say she attended the school, but basically it was one white student. So the white student was the minority. Um, and I want to share that because it obviously is like a glimpse into the beginning of her career in journalism, but also some of the insights that I think can be taken from just experiences of racism and stuff like that. So Quote, I was the only apprentice who had a piece published in the Free Press's Sunday magazine. I wrote an essay about the only white student at my high school, a kid named Morgan, who was constantly bullied because he was white. Morgan fascinated me. I always wondered how a goofy white boy like him ended up in such a black ass high school. After what he went through at our school, part of me couldn't have blamed him if he hated black people later on in life because we'd been so mean to him. Morgan got his ass beat again and again, and he just took it. Or I almost felt bad about the way my classmates treated him. But whenever people made fun of Morgan, I laughed along with everyone else just to fit in. I had read and seen enough to know that Black people had been constantly victimized by racial oppression. But seeing what happened to Morgan presented a different glimpse of the racial picture I had constructed. While what Morgan went through didn't necessarily compare to the hundreds of years of racial oppression Black folks in this country continued to endure, I realized that if vengeance, not equality, 
was the goal, it would only be a matter of time before the oppressed mirrored the traits of the oppressor. The kids who bullied Morgan didn't see him as human. And if we adopted the same lack of compassion for people that weren't Black, we were never going to achieve true and full liberation, end quote. So I just thought that was interesting how, um, as a high school student, she's you're seeing her creativity and her talent start to shine through. Um, but I also just like that story because it, I think it's evergreen in a sense that it can teach us something um, about, you know, what we're dealing with today and um, just humanity in general. So that was one of my favorite parts of that chapter. Looking through the the chapters that we read, what were some what were some other uh, talking points? What are some of the because it's a this book is uh, a lot of like stories as she like goes through the timeline. Um, I'm interested to see like what parts of that story um, stood out to y'all and made the most impact. I think her um, and this I guess goes along with mental health. A lot of the times she didn't think she was qualified for a job, and her friends had to talk her into applying to be like what's the worst that can happen? I think a lot of us go through that. We uh, second guess ourselves so much that we talk ourselves out of it before we even try it. So luckily for her, she had friends that didn't just take no for an answer, I guess. So um, we saw it with the uh, guy when she went down to Orlando and was working there. And he's just like, basically, you're going to end up at ESPN. And she's like, no, no way. I'm never going to be there. Lo and behold, she went there and was making shockwaves was making statements about Hitler of all things but I wasn't here last week either but just the thread of the fact that regardless of what she ever saw or experienced in her life she had a clear goal for herself not just to not experience what her mother and grandmother experienced but the trajectory of having a career in journalism the type of woman that she wanted to be. And even though things may have gotten her way occasionally, she still went forward. There was never a regression of, um, like you said, she might not have thought she was qualified for that job, but it didn't stop her from, um, even when she got anxious about some of the things she wrote down in Miami as a columnist to begin with, she still... It didn't override where she wanted to go. Um, and I like um, that spirit in her that she is just um, focused and knows who she is and what she wants. And things come and happen, but they don't, um, they kind of almost propel her forward more. And that's what I've enjoyed so much about um, getting to know who she is and and what she's gone through is that that spirit in her that continues to move forward. So one of the funny stories, I guess, from this was the uh, chapter 10, the baby mama drama situation where her uh, essentially boss was very upset that she used the term baby mama. But for the market that this story probably would have been written for the younger people who would have been around this guy's age that she was covering, they use the term. It's like second nature. It's not something that would have offended anybody. So the fact that uh, her boss was so up in arms about it, like, I can't believe you published this and you let us do this. So um, I think it's very telling of what's to come from her in the future of being willing to kind of like go with her gut and toe the line versus worry about 
if somebody's going to approve it. So she said in a later chapter, she said, while journalists were taught to remove their emotions from stories, I turned my pain into perspective. So oftentimes she would um, insert herself into the stories like she would kind of go outside of the industry norm. Um, and that was her ability to like make it more personal. And that's why she was able to like gain popularity. And I can appreciate that. I think, you know, I, I'm not a journalist or anything like that, but I write things on the internet. And I think some of the best things that I write are when I just unapologetically talk from my own perspective, as opposed to earlier in my career, uh, I would have like written from a very academic, like kind of, uh, perspective. Um, but just being like a, a human being first, um, it seems to resonate better with people. So, you know, saying something like baby mama, like that, people identify with that, you know. But I think, too, she did a good job at painting how we often have to deal with office politics and, you know, respectability politics and, you know, not. And it all, oftentimes these media companies are like have like a lot of older people who are overseeing things. So what they say goes kind of things but uh i was it was kind of cool like you know you're reading a book but you're like cheering her on like how she like stood her ground and stuff like that so very good example uh, i liked her the section where she talked about like having the white roommates in college like after never having you know really lived with white people and stuff like that and um obviously the first roommate situation didn't work out but she had these two that were they were really able to like you know, let their hair down and like, like get to know each other. And they were from areas where you would assume that the people would have been like racist or had reputations and stuff. And they got into like a lot of, you know, little conversations about like, you know, why don't black people wash their hair every day and that that sort of stuff. I, um, I enjoyed reading that. And it's not always the norm of like how, you know, you know, on the brochures for college, they'll say like, oh, you know, they try to paint like diversity and stuff like that. It's people segregate, right? Like, um, but like that she was out on her own for the first time and she was able to kind of navigate that and to like share how she got to learn about other people. What were y'all's takes on that experience of her in in college with the the white roommates or some of the other insights on like race? I grew up in a very, very, very small town here in New York and she's right you could go with never speaking to someone of a different culture or a different nationality or black or brown or anything because of how predominantly white the small town that i grew up in was and we did have some families scattered so there were a few but it was kind of like what happened to that boy in her school that was you know there were like two black families an asian family there weren't, um, there weren't a lot of people. Um, you have to be very intentional to leave your area and go someplace that's more diverse when you're born in a tiny little white town. Because otherwise, if you don't, you're not going to learn. You're not going to experience other people's ways of life and cultures and um I mean, I didn't, other than the few friends that I had in school that whose families lived there, I wasn't exposed to anyone that wasn't white. And then as I got older, um, I made sure that I 
put myself in situations where I could meet other people. And, and there's not a lot of people that are willing to do that, to go out of their, you know, cause then there's different groups, like even my church group, like they don't, the church group that I was in, they didn't leave that group to expose themselves to other religions or to the actual community that they were supposed to be uplifting and helping. They just kind of stayed in this thing. And I think um, it does a disservice to the people that are around you. And I, I live in another small town. So it's, it's one of those things where I purposely have to join groups and be things and expose myself and learn things that I didn't get to learn in high school. And it's um, work I think a lot of people don't want to do. And I didn't do it until, you know, the last 10 years. So it's sad to say that that's the way that it is. Thank you for sharing that. And she, there was one example, you know, as Jamel kind of progresses through her career as she's up and coming, she obviously like, you know, I feel like if you're doing something right, you're going to piss some people off. And so there's an example where she encountered racism uh, on the job. So, quote, but that reaction was nothing compared to the rage I incited from white readers when I wrote that reverse racism didn't exist. It was the column that got me called nigger for the first time by someone white. He wrote it to me in a letter, and I remember being so stunned that someone would say something so horrible to someone they didn't know over a newspaper column. Drew's inbox was bombarded with letters to the editor. My personal email was also flooded with angry white people calling me every racial slur you could imagine. It got so bad that a white man called me at my desk at the paper demanding that I not only apologize for my column, but write a full retraction. I kept calm at first, but eventually the the Detroit in me came out and yelled back at him. What are you going to do if I don't apologize? He responded, then you can expect to see me where you least expect. And he hung up. Up until that point, I chalked the reaction to harmless bluster, but his threat rattled me. I knew columnists had a tendency to piss people off, but I never even thought about someone physically harming me. Uh, I made a report to the campus police, but that didn't make me feel any safer because the police didn't offer to do anything but make a report. Then later that semester, I had to contact campus police again when someone else started to harass me. Other people of color at the paper and really anyone who wrote about racial issues. This anonymous person regularly sent letters to the state news that were written on the course on the course brown napkins usually found in bathrooms. We didn't know if it was a student or just someone who lived in the community. He called us racial slurs and threatened to start a race war if we continued our writing and reporting on racial issues. So I'll stop there. But basically it escalated i i like how she was like vulnerable and how you know it rattled her but also if you think about it like the the fact that the one person was like writing these notes on like the the like brown paper towel that you get from like you know a public restroom or something like that that's so creepy to me that reminds me of like you know like an unsolved mysteries kind of like you know it's very spooky so i was interested in y'all's thoughts on that section so my first job out of undergrad was ESPN. Um, I remember going to a Burger King one day and the guy was like, it's so nice to see another black person that doesn't work here. Like, literally, this is 2007, 2008 when I'm at ESPN. So this is Connecticut. So 
ESPN is in Bristol, Connecticut. All that Bristol, Connecticut is, is ESPN. That's all they get their money from. Pretty much, if you live there, you either grew up there or somebody came to work for ESPN and you just stayed. Um, but working there, like, I can't tell you how many times I got followed by the police just driving, how many times I got pulled over, how many times I went to the mall and been followed. So it's not only dealing with it at work when you're actively writing, but it's dealing with it every day when you're just trying to exist. And your colleagues don't necessarily understand it who have never had to deal with like being the minority because for them, you know, nobody's going to follow them just because they happen to be someplace. So I think a lot of times when even now at my station, if we cover something a certain way, we will get Trump supporters coming out of the woodworks like, how dare you say this? This isn't true. It's fake news. You're just drawing up drama. It's like people don't want to accept that things really exist. You can't just ignore it and it goes away. Like, there's clearly a problem. It's like we keep seeing these mass shootings and nobody wants to talk about it. They're just like, oh, well, you know, we'll send thoughts and prayers. There's only but so much that's going to keep doing. It keeps happening. But from a writing standpoint, you kind of have to pick and choose your battles, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I, I think the the takeaway that I want to take from what you just shared, Nita, is that Sometimes when you have a successful black person doing something, it there will always be somebody who shows the underbelly of like someone who's hell bent on not having progress. So I follow a um, I want to say she's a licensed psychologist, like a clinical psychologist on um, Instagram. And so um, she's just doing like some sort of like live. I think I was at the I was like walking into the gym. I was like, oh. This person's doing a live. So I was like on the elliptical. I was like, oh, I could watch this. You know, um, it was she's like making breakfast with her kids. Right. And I'm like watching, you know, the comments coming in like uh, over the live and stuff like that. And this comment pops up. Um, basically, the handle uh, is uh, with that has the words in it. All blacks must burn. So I saw that and I was like, that's a first of all, how did this get approved as an account name uh, by Instagram? Uh, and then literally, because this is a black woman, uh, says something about how she's, I can't even remember the specifics, but something like, um, oh, you're like shit brown black or something like, just like really just vulgar, like, and mind you, she's just baking biscuits, like with her kids, like on Instagram, not bothering nobody, but also like you sought this out, like you went in there and you wanted to just do that. So I don't think she saw the comment because she didn't, you know, flinch or anything. And I don't think she was because her she has toddlers. So she's like trying to wrangle them and do all this. I don't think she was really seeing it. But I saw that and I'm like, you know, uh, pedaling, you know, pumping away on the elliptical. And I'm like, absolutely not. So I like immediately like tapped it and reported it to Instagram. And I didn't I didn't even think anything of it until Instagram sends me a notification today. And it's basically along the lines of we didn't remove their comment. And it was like because of a high volume of reports, we didn't take this seriously, basically. And I'm like, y'all could have just said you didn't look it, or you could have just not contacted me because I had already forgotten about it. But I screenshot it and I basically clapped back at Instagram and tagged them. I said, do better because 
not only, and I didn't realize, you know, at the time, but I'm like, the person, like the hate is in the person's handle. So you can't tell me it didn't violate the policy when in the, you know, all black people must burn. That's problematic. But then that you're literally commenting on her skin tone and comparing it to feces is just weird. But then to have like a bot hit it back and say, oh, we're so busy. We're not going to take everything seriously. That that just really made me feel some kind of way. But I think uh, it's worth mentioning because like in Jamel Hill's line of work, like obviously she's like editing and publishing something, whereas a lot of the content that we are consuming on the daily basis is something that's on the fly. That's like a a lot, someone going live or someone's posting a tweet or something like that. We, we run into hate and we run into people who clearly this fellow woman, whoever, who has this account has a, a chip about something and they they take their time on the internet to like try to make comments or to be inflammatory but you know like you said uh before nothing's really changed these these things keep happening so maybe by me tagging them again and bringing it back to their attention they'll go back and look at it but i think i think it was in this section but she was talking about when she um got pregnant and had the (laughs) everybody nods their head and had the abortion and um how like she talked about she never really wanted kids and wondered how she would like make it and all those things that come with making that sort of decision and how like she went through with it and it just got me wondering with everything that's going on in the country this these days about like abortion and i'm like wow like look at her experience with that and she was able to like go and like get it done and now look at where we are like i I don't remember the timeline around when she when she got the abortion or when she became pregnant i can't remember how long ago it was but it it just kind of felt like reading that and then seeing like where we are now as a country it just felt like we kind of moved backwards Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I actually highlighted that. So I'll, I'll share a couple of things to kind of add some insight. Here's the quote. I kept wanting to feel something, anything, but the only thing I felt was shame for even putting myself in that situation. However, the emotions I didn't feel were remorse or regret. I never asked for God's forgiveness because I wasn't sorry I happened. Once I made the decision, I never looked back. And not since then have I wished I had made another decision. I did feel some guilt, but not for the reasons people would think. I felt guilty because I didn't really have an excuse not to have the baby. I wasn't impoverished. I wasn't the victim of an assault. I wasn't high risk. I was college educated with a good job and a support system, but I made the right choice for me. There was a narrative that women or there there's a narrative that women should only be allowed to access abortion under the worst circumstances, such as rape or incest. But there's also nothing wrong with a woman choosing abortion simply because she doesn't want children. I'm not advocating that abortion should become a substitute for actual birth control, but mistakes happen. Women deserve the right deserve the right to decide if and when they want to have children. End quote. And I think you know, to your what you had shared, Whitney, is that she was able to do so in a time where uh, the resources and the the legal precedent would support a person doing that. I'm interested in some of y'all's takes on that. 
I think that we get very, very caught up in the pro-life, pro-choice debate. And I think that as women, that is sometimes a disservice to us because I think sometimes we forget about all the nuances that are so important, which make that debate so critical. I have worked with women that have hidden pictures of their children. I have worked with women who just don't want it even to be known that they have a family. And so I think the thing that really... Whereas I've been on the flip side and I've been pushed to work later and later and I have literally had it said to me, well, you're not running home to any kids. You know, there there are big perceptions in the roles that women should play and or feel pushed to play. Women carry a lot of bags. But I think something that resonated um, with me and I will be forthright in that some of this could be me reading between the lines and something that just burns me up. Why is it that women are put into a corner as you may have a family or you may have a career? And why are we not pushing that debate just as hard as we are pushing some of these other things? Perhaps that would have made a different choice for her. Perhaps it would not have. I don't know. The choice has been made. I don't really know that it's worth debating, but it does seem that I hear women get in this corner and I don't really hear men talk about that as frequently. It's not to say that they don't. That's not to say it's not real, but it is a very gendered debate. And I just wish we would sometimes pay attention to that too. Um, and that it shouldn't be, you know, career or family. Why Why can't women have both too? That's something that bothers me and that I think about a lot in my role. Oh, I'm going to have to say I agree with you in this sense of like, it's a, a double standard, but I think it's been a standard that's been in place for a long time because originally, you know, they wanted the men to work and provide for women and children. So women weren't really welcome in the workplace in the beginning. So now it's just like they see you with kids. They think you're going to miss work because your kid's sick. You have to do stuff because you have a family. They think those obligations are going to overshadow your job. So they're going to lose money hiring you versus hiring a man because that man is probably not going to miss work like the woman would to tend to the family. So it sucks, but it definitely exists across all industries. And she talked about that too, like that she was always very career driven. I, I have a quote here that kind of says it really quickly, but quote, my default is to pour all of my energy into my career. It's one of the few things I've been able to count on to be my safe haven. People have let me down. My, my career never has, end quote. With that being her safe place, like um, she didn't want anything that could potentially take that away from her. And like you said, if you know, jobs are going to look at what sort of obligations do you have and uh, what is your value to us if you're going to need to take those obligations. But on the flip side of what Brianna said is like, how fucked up is that, that a job will be like, oh, you should work longer, harder hours because you don't have kids. It's like, wait a second, is there going to be additional compensation for this additional time? Or is it just a given because I have nothing better to do 
than to just work because I am I don't have it reproduced. Like it's weird. But at the same time, it's weird to think like, oh, someone would have to choose livelihood because they've gotten pregnant. Right. And so that's why people are in these positions where they, you know, um, because stuff happens, right? Um, and then they have to make a, a decision with those things in mind, because at the end of the day, if, you know, we've, we've done part one of this. We know where Jamel came from. She's not going to let something stop her from being able to provide for herself and things like that, because she's been through the worst, right? She points out, she's like, I wasn't ready. And, but it, women are in a position where they have to, you know, almost justify like, why are you doing this? Or why are you thinking about doing this? And there's all sorts of like shame and things like that. She, she said, the only shame I had is that I wasn't more careful, you know, and I, I, I like her perspective on it. every story is unique, but I think we definitely, like she said, need to get away from these trauma narratives where it has to be the worst of the worst. Like you have to be like gang raped in an alley or in some sort of trafficking situation or something like that to earn the privilege to manage your own body. We definitely need to move away from that being the only legitimized uh viewpoint unfortunately the policies and the laws that are being passed are basically doing just that and not only like eliminating that but they're also like cutting off all of the other resources that a a lot of the resources that lead up to being able to manage your reproduction it's almost like you're putting people in a position where unwanted pregnancies are going to happen and then you have no options when that happens too i'm gonna get off that that soapbox. Did anybody else have any other thoughts on that before we move on? Only that I wish she didn't feel shame about not managing her own body because she wasn't the only one in that situation. You know, I mean, she didn't get pregnant by herself. So where was his responsibility? Where was his accountability in that situation? It, it always falls on the woman and, and my journey with this whole topic has changed over my entire life. It's it's not it's not a one and done thing like this is how I'm in a concrete feel about this for the rest of my life. I have two beautiful children. I've had two miscarriages and I am going to turn 50 this year and the thought of getting pregnant scares the hell out of me. I don't want another child. I'm coming into I'm finally mentally stable. I'm finally financially stable. I don't want to give up that freedom. So if I got pregnant, I don't know what I would do. And there's a lot of people who are like, oh, you're a Christian. You shouldn't think that way. But it's not your business how I'm thinking. It's my business. My relationship with God is my relationship. I'll account for that. However, that winds up happening, which I don't know how that's going to happen because how the hell could we possibly know? <laughs> you know what I mean? So to to have the arrogance to think that we could possibly one understand another person's heart or thought process the arrogance to think that we could manage something like that for another human being is just absurd to me uh, no woman should ever feel anything other than what she particularly is going to feel about that situation and she shouldn't be judged by it she shouldn't like she felt shame about that I just feel bad that she felt that because it's an emotion that she shouldn't have to feel with that. But because of the way society is orchestrated, that's how we're going to feel. And it's just kind of shit. 
No, I was just going to say, um, and I could talk about this like all day long. Um, but my biggest takeaway is also like, it's nobody's business, but the person that's like getting the abortion. And it's like, I'm sure everybody has their own business that needs to be attended to. So like, this is my business. This is your business. Why are you here in my business? <laughs> Mind your own business. That's it. That's it. So we've talked about domestic violence in the first section, but one of the examples that she shared in the second section was about her auntie Mimi. Um, and I just wanted to share kind of the aftermath of that, um, because obviously there's a story in here about her auntie Mimi, who was basically abused. And I think the chapter was called like the sacrificial lamb, but kind of how she used, again, Jamel Hill will use her own experiences and uh, perspectives, and it will influence the work that she does. So, quote, Auntie Nini lived a life without peace. Uh, I asked my editor in Lima if I could write a three-part series on domestic violence. I wanted the series to center on the experiences of domestic violence survivors and to bring awareness to how, in many cases, their cries for help were ignored by by the police <coughs> or rationalized by their family members. I needed my audience to understand that women often stayed with their abusers because they believed that they had no other choice. Like my auntie Nini, their spirits had been broken, but I also wanted to highlight success stories and how some domestic violence survivors had been able to piece their lives back together after enduring such horrific abuse. It was an ambitious project for an 18-year-old, but I wanted to do it in, to, to honor... Auntie Nini, and other Black women who weren't able to advocate for themselves. While journalists are taught to remove their emotions from their stories, I turned my pain into perspective. So I shared that little snippet earlier, but um, this is an example. So um, she's seen so much domestic violence growing up, her own mother and her various relationships and things like that. She's seen other women, you know, um, I think it was the grandmother, somebody who tried to kill the husband multiple times and stuff like that. Of course, I like that at such a young age, she's like really tackling these like huge issues and things like that. Um, even from just a storytelling standpoint, it's just really cool to see how from a very young age, she had a high level of resilience to her and learning from other people's experiences that kind of took her very far. So I didn't know if anyone had anything to comment on that. Um. My station does a lot to cover domestic violence only because a lot of people don't realize how prevalent it is in our society. And um, when we had the pandemic, it got a lot worse, especially for kids, because they were constantly at home with their abusers. They didn't have an outlet. They didn't have the uh, mandated reporters reporting things that were happening because everything was virtual. So a lot of the times people don't realize that it could be one of their closest friends that is literally being abused. But until that person is able to realize that this is not normal or is willing to step step up and say something, nothing changes. So there's so many shelters in like the Virginia Beach area that are like at capacity because these women are scared for their lives because they realize that if they stay much longer, they're not going to leave that situation in anything but a body bag so the fact that she was able to internalize this in her early 20s and write about it from personal experience yes it sucks but it's something people needed to see um what i thought was interesting was that she didn't 
so far she, I don't know, she doesn't talk about being in therapy at all, but she kind of processes and heals through her writing. Because as I'm reading this, I'm like, she's talking about all this stuff. Like it happened way over here on a screen and she's watching it, but she's not connected to it. And I can't tell if that's just because that's easier than processing it, but she does process it just in um, a way that not only helps her heal, I think, but like you said, um, brings it to the forefront for other people to realize that these things are important, they're necessary, and she's not apologetic about it, probably even how she writes about it. And I can't wait to like pull up some of her articles and read some of her actual writing um, because I don't watch sports stuff for ESPN. So this was my first introduction to her and it's pretty, she's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, so I want to see how she's written about these things. Cause I think that that probably helped her, even if she didn't realize it to process the stuff that actually did happen to her, especially with her Antonini to be able to write um, about how that affected her and what could have been done because there's too many reports that never get looked into or, and I'm sure that that's higher in the black community and the brown communities than it is in the white. I mean, it still doesn't happen as much, but um, it's got to be worse. And I, I can see where that um, just kind of amplifies what she went through. If I'm not mistaken, the environment surrounding this story was about the time of the OJ Simpson thing. And so she had, of course, juxtaposed how, like, you know, when it was her Auntie Nini, this is just a Black woman, you know, uh, who uh, basically was just a case file probably on somebody's, you know, desk or something like that. Whereas in the O.J. Simpson, it was a white woman, right? Uh, and a Black man, right? So it, and of course, a celebrity and there's, you know, it was sensationalized, right? But the the attention that it gets, it varies between based on who's involved and stuff like that. But one more thing I'll, I'll add to kind of her, like all, all of us have been sharing, like how she puts her own personal perspective to it. She said on page 100, she said, quote, depending on the content, bringing in my experience and vulnerabilities as a Black woman to stories only made them richer, more nuanced. Journalists are always taught to prioritize objectivity, but sometimes journalists hide behind that to avoid exposing hard truths. Adding perspective and context is far more important. And I've mentioned that earlier, like when I write things, uh, it seems to resonate more with people when there's a personal aspect to it. I think my whole I guess brand, if you say, I, I get annoyed with people who overuse the term brand these days. But as a therapist, right, like my, the thing about me that I guess sets me apart is that I'm a human first and foremost. Like I, I bring all of myself to that as opposed to being like, oh, I'm this, you know, master's educated person with the license, right? And just being a person who's been through some shit and will tell a client like, hey, I have anxiety. That's the whole reason I'm a freaking therapist is because I went through anxiety, right? For them to be able to see like, oh, but I'm also black. I'm also, you know, you know, mixed. I'm also a parent. I'm also all of these other things as part of being a human that I can bring to the table. That is what helps me help people. It's not the damn theories and books that I read and stuff like that. And it, it's 
knowing that I'm a real human and being in touch with that, that's how I'm able to access other people and where they're at in their story and then be able to help them. Because if people think that you're talking down to them or if that you're looking at them as a problem to solve, there can be a big disconnect and there's limitations to what you can do. But being able to bring yourself to that seems to, I mean, obviously applies in my line of work, but in her case, when she brought herself to the work, she said it, it was it was richer, it was deeper, it, it meant more to people. So I think it's necessary to have those perspectives, especially for people who um, don't purposely go out to find other perspectives. It's it's necessary to have that one for the integrity of a, a paper to know that you're actually getting real perspectives, not just um, whatever line that the company or the paper wants to set out there. You're getting actual people who care about what they're writing, who are writing from their point of view. And I think that we don't have enough of that. That there's so much I don't trust that I'm hearing because I feel like it's all altered and chewed and not what is necessary because it doesn't uh, fit the narrative that a small amount of people want to have heard. So I appreciate her boldness to do that. And yours too. I try to not end the episode on something negative but i don't even call it negative because whether we're talking about abortion or domestic violence or whatever the heavier topics may be ending a conversation on something that is less than pleasant is not a bad thing and we need to normalize that also that not everything ends with a happy ending however since the last tab in my highlighted things from this particular section happens to be something of a more positive nature why not So we get an update on mom. So in part one, mom was really going through it. You know, it was kind of up and down. Like, obviously, mom is a very traumatized person. But at this uh, point in the story, I think this is where uh, she's moving down to Raleigh in like the old 92 Buick. Like they got some fried chicken. You know, it's kind of like you're getting this like very real like mother-daughter moment road trip story. So she says, quote, my relationship with my mother was finally in a good place. College had given me the space I needed to discover who I was independent of my mother's addiction. I was proud of my mother's incredible progress, or I was proud of the incredible progress she'd made in turning her life around. She was drug-free and had much and had left much of her old life behind, end quote. So I wanted to just give an update because obviously in part one, we talked about a lot of the 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 addiction, the uh, adversities and things like that, that her mom's uh, obviously trauma and decision making and things like that had brought into her life. But um, I thought that was uh, a fun moment to read that. Any any takeaways or insights on that? Like in front of me almost feels bad for bringing this up, but. Now, I feel like every time I think about her talking about her mom, I'm thinking about this uh, Camaro she drove to essentially the trap house to to get some drugs. Like, you, you clearly were not thinking, that's fine. You just needed your fix. But, like, I'm glad she was able to overcome that and be there for her daughter to get, like, that first out-of-state job. So... I think that was at the end of the last, of the first section that we read. And didn't the car get stolen or something? Uh, so they wanted to try to steal it but you remember she had she hid in the closet under the dirty clothes and like the rats walking over the dirty clothes 
mm-hmm. it was just a mess. And like Jamil's like, you would think that would have been rock bottom, but it wasn't. So it's kind of yeah. like she came a long way. So yeah, that was good though. But that that like moment where they were like driving to to Raleigh and them to kind of have that. And the thing, I guess, as we wrap up with part two now, that I keep thinking of is she started this book with I went to therapy out of spite or something like that, or I can't remember specifically what the first lines were, but it's like, come on, we've made it through over half of the book now. And I've not heard a thing about any therapy. Um, I just think, I don't know, maybe I'm thinking of like continuity. Like if you're going to start with that, like, shouldn't we hear something about the therapy, but to what Angela had said before, um, and I don't know if I had commented on this, but writing could be the therapy. Because I know for me, um, especially more recently, writing is therapeutic. And I think um, maybe that's probably, if, if I had to guess, that might be what it is. I mean, obviously, she did actually go to therapy therapy too. But it seems like her writing throughout these different stages of her life proved to be very therapeutic. But I just, as a small critique, I'm like, not you know you kind of hooked us in with the oh i went to therapy for the first time and it's not even in a sense that this is like a mental health book club or whatever so we want to hear about everyone's experience going to therapy because that's not what this is supposed to be but it's just interesting to me that we're definitely more than 50 percent into the book and i haven't heard anything about going to therapy so hopefully she comes back to that otherwise um it would seem like a missed opportunity since you started it with that but any any takeaways any um reflections or impressions that anybody has before we wrap up for today i think it's kind of funny i think a lot of us that ended up in therapy did it as a way to get over the shit our parents put us through so the fact that her mom pretty much is the reason why she went because my mom she was like my mom told me i was angry well look at what i went through growing up why do you think i'm angry so I think sometimes parents don't want to look at it that way, but I'm just like, you're probably part of the reason your kid is in therapy. I think that's a, a lot of times a hard pill for parents to swallow. <laughs> I'm always checking in with mine. Do we need to talk about anything? Was there anything that I did? And I don't know if that's because of, of my generation, but like my daughter and I actually have gone through therapy together because she had gone through well, she is bipolar. And so there was a lot of stuff we had to process together to get her stable and whatever. And then I had a nervous breakdown and then we both did stuff to work through it. So I always worry about my son, like, Shh, there's a lot of stuff he doesn't say to me, what's really in there? <laughs> and when is it going to come out? But you know, we do the best we can. And to see them have that car ride, and have their chicken and know that they were eating it out of the foil. And there's just something about your mom making your food. You know, my mom can't make my food anymore because she's not here. So to, to know that they got to have that, you know, and to repair stuff, that's, that's kind of awesome. I think it's good too, that parents are like checking in now, like uh, maybe we're hitting a, a stride of awareness where more parents are like, Oh, maybe that experience could have been interpreted a certain way, or maybe I had a a role in this particular <clears throat> symptom or trauma or you know mental health challenge that you have. I think 
a, a parent's willingness to like listen, learn, and um, obviously give their kids access to that help is obviously on the rise, but just as many like good parents as there are, who, not to say you're a bad parent if you are not that aware, but there are some parents who are, will argue to the death that what you mean you want to talk to somebody like you have food, clothing, shelter, and uh, transportation, like, uh, you know, and it's, it's really interesting to me. And I'm like, you know, I go right for the jugular. I'm like, uh, sir, your child just told me they want to kill themselves. Like maybe this isn't the time to like split hairs on whether or not this is necessary because I would like it for your child to be alive next week for their session. I don't know about you. It usually doesn't, you know, they, they don't really have a response to that one, but um, there are a lot of parents who will like really don't, they don't want to, cause it, it's a hard pill to swallow. Like you said, to just say like, Hey, I fucked up. But most kids, especially teen, I work with a lot of teenagers. Teenagers are very like, things get bounce right off of them. Like if you just say, Oh, my bad. They're like, okay. It's not that serious, but when you like dig your heels in and say, I have done nothing wrong and stuff like that, it teaches them that, you know, things being truth uh, can potentially hurt them. So uh, I'm going to leave that one there. Yeah. Next week, we are going to do the next four chapters. Uh, So it'll be chapters 11 through 14. Uh, So if you're following along, that is pages 132 through 178. So um, if you're listening to the podcast, thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next week for part three. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, You can subscribe by email with the link in this episode show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.